Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to uh, Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 this morning. We're not covering much ground, but what we're covering is crucial. And one of my favorite parts of this letter. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning first came on my radar. I mean, I've read it, I'm sure, many times over the years. But first really came on my radar about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, when we were preparing to begin our church. We were doing a study called Gospel-Centered Life, a curriculum for small group conversations. And one of the lessons was about this story, the story we're going to unpack together today. One of, the, one of the reasons we chose that curriculum then and have continued to use a lot of the language of gospel-centered living ever since is that we want our church to be a place where we are all doing what we can to help one another apply the gospel to our lives. We don't want the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus, to be something that we only offer to people who haven't tasted it yet. It is that, but we don't want it to be only that. We want the gospel to be something that shapes everything about us from top to bottom, as individuals and as a community. It's for everybody, for always. Because the gospel isn't just this a way into peace and relationship with God or to the hope of heaven. It has implications that touch every part of our lives now, from the deepest motives inside of us to our actions, large and small, near and far. The gospel touches everything. And this story that we're going to look at this morning shows us that. It shows us how important the implications of the gospel are for the lives that we're living. And it shows us how we can learn together what even Peter, one of the first teachers of the gospel, still needed help to learn. This, got, this story this morning shows us a clash of titans. A moment in time when Peter was confronted by Paul for doing something that Paul claimed was inconsistent with the gospel Peter believed. Paul included it in this letter because he's still trying to convince those people he's writing to that his gospel is the true one, not the one that they've heard from some teachers who come in behind him. He's still in a long section showing that, that the truth of this gospel has held, even when it was threatened, even by people on the inside. For us, this story is an opportunity to think about, to think carefully about how we're applying the implications of the gospel to our lives and how we can do that together. Now, to get here, I simply want to ask, I, I simply want to ask the question, what happened in Antioch? That's the place that this story went down. What happened in this story, and what can we learn from it? Those are the two questions we're going to consider this morning. What happened in Antioch, and what can we learn from it? Now, I want to begin by reading this story. I'm going to pick up in verse 11, and I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's another word for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. You can be seated. 
What happened in Antioch? We need to look at these details together before we start to work them into our context here and now. And I want to break it down piece by piece. Verse 11 summarizes what happened. It says simply, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him. That's what this story is about. Paul opposing Peter. Then verse 12 tells what Peter did. Then verse 13 shows the fallout. And then verse 14 gives us Paul's response. So I want to walk you through each of those details to make sure you understand what's happening here. So then we can turn to actually trying to learn from it together. What happened here so that we can learn from it? Here's the the first detail to notice is what Peter did. That's in verse 12. It's a before and after story. Verse 12 says, Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That right there, that detail alone is huge. And we need to make sure we understand it. What that detail tells us is that Peter was willingly living outside the boundaries of the Old Testament rules for cleanliness. The Old Testament, the law of Moses, included a, law, a group of laws we refer to as the ceremonial laws. They were laws that were meant to help Israel understand that because of their sin, they were not worthy of the presence of a holy God. Sin separates us from a holy God who deserves everything from us and whom we've not given what he deserves. Those laws were meant to show that. So there were laws that, that affected what Jews could touch, what they could eat, touched all sorts of things like, like, uh, like, like, like the, um, for example, if you touched a, a dead body, you'd be defiled before, uh, the cer- under the ceremonial law. And you have to go through certain rituals to cleanse yourself before you could come back into the temple to worship. Uh, all sorts of details you can read about in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and these laws. Well, Peter had lived his life under those laws. But when Peter came to understand what Jesus had done for him, he came to understand that those laws didn't matter anymore. That the cleanliness, those laws were there to teach him he needed has now been given to him perfectly and completely, not because of him, but because Jesus stands for him and his blood has washed him clean. Peter, eating with these Gentiles, showed what he believed about the gospel. It's the same beliefs that he showed in the passage we looked at last week when Paul brings his Gentile convert, Titus, to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. He puts them right here in front of them as a kind of test case. What will you do with this man who has not been circumcised and has not been living under the law of Moses? And Peter and the other apostles leave Titus just as he is. Because Titus has faith in what Jesus has done for him. And that faith is enough. Peter gives the right hand of fellowship, Paul says. Because Peter believes the gospel. Now, these laws that were meant to remind Israel that they needed cleansing from their sin over time could quickly become, could easily become symbols of something else they could easily become symbols of their cleanliness and what separated them from those who were unclean over time these laws meant to point to the need for something else that Jesus would bring could become a badge of honor a source of pride for the Jews who followed them 
so that rather than these laws showing them that they're not clean and need to be cleansed from sin, they become pointers to other people's uncleanliness and unworthiness of their time and their presence. Now, it seems like that's what had happened even for some Christians who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who had been promised, the one who had come to forgive them of their sins, who even had come to die as the perfect sacrifice who would take away sin. Even Jews that were believing those things about Jesus still were believing that these cleanliness laws had to be followed. We're still believing that Gentiles who don't follow those cleanliness laws were less than them and could defile them if they hung out together. Now, Peter, because he was eating with Gentiles, was showing he's done with that way of thinking. He knows that the law has been fulfilled perfectly by everything that Jesus is, and now it's not necessary anymore. That's what Peter knows. But it's still a touchy subject especially among a certain faction of Jewish Christians Paul calls here the circumcision party and for some reason that party shows up in Antioch we're not told why they come just that they come from James another leader from Jerusalem who knows what their purpose was it seems like it's more than happenstance they just happen to be passing through it seems like to me at least just in the way that the story reads that they came to find something out. Maybe they came to figure out what was going on in Antioch, as if news of this eating with Gentiles has made it back to HQ back in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why they came, but we are told what Peter did when they showed up. What Peter did was separate himself from his Gentile friends, those whom he had been eating with because they were worthy in Christ. He now separated from as if they were not worthy. He drew back. And we're told that he did this because he feared the circumcision party. Maybe he was afraid of division. You know, he didn't want to alienate this faction. He's trying to hold it all together. He wants everybody to get along and he knows it. Maybe for a time, I'm just going to hold back. I'm going to go with them for a while and, and, and wait for my moment, maybe. And that'd be a charitable way of reading what he was afraid of. Maybe he was afraid that this sort of law-breaking would make persecution work worse for Christians. It would draw more attention to them and, and make things harder for them. Maybe, and I think probably more likely, he fears losing a place in a group that mattered to him. A belonging that he wasn't willing to give up. A belonging he wanted so badly that to avoid the pain of being excluded from those he wanted to befriend he was willing to cause pain to those he was now excluding that's what happened the fallout was significant that's verse 13 it was even bigger than the pain that would have been caused to his Gentile friends who now he wasn't willing to eat with verse 13 says Paul's or rather Peter's actions spread to other people he was an important leader. People took their cues from him. Even fellow leaders in the church followed Peter. So when Peter draws back and separates himself from these Gentiles, guess what happens? The rest of the Jews act hypocritically right along with him. And even Barnabas, 
who was Paul's ally, his traveling partner, his fellow missionary to the Gentiles, whose whole life at this point was getting the gospel to to Gentile areas. Even Barnabas follows suit and pulls back as if these Gentile friends, as they were, were unworthy. And that sets us up for Paul's response. This is the final detail that we have to understand. It's the, the key to this passage and the reason that this whole anecdote made it into the letter. Verse 14 tells us, shows us Paul's response to what happened here. Now, it matters that Paul calls what they've done, what Peter and those who followed him have done, hypocritical or hypocrisy. That matters. That's a word from the theater for play acting or putting on a mask. The reason that word matters so much is, is everything Paul's been saying up until this point. See, see, what Paul said right before this story is, all the apostles agree with me about the gospel. We don't have two separate gospels where there's my version, where all you need is Jesus, and their version where you need Jesus plus all the laws of Moses. We actually agree. It's all Jesus all the time plus nothing else. So he's been making that case in detail up until this point. He hasn't changed his subject yet. That gospel is still the thing that unites the church. That's why he says when Peter did what he did, he was acting hypocritically. Because inside, Peter still believed the gospel. But outside, Peter changed his practice. Peter put on a mask. Peter protected himself from the implications of the gospel that he believed so that he wouldn't alienate or be kicked out of this group of friends that he wanted to please. Peter knew better, in other words, because he and Paul agree about the gospel. And that's why he's been eating with Gentiles up until this point. When this circumcision party showed up, he didn't change his mind. He just hid his convictions behind his actions. Or, to use Paul's phrase, the key phrase in the passage, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel so that believing one thing, he did another. I think this understanding of what, what's going on with Peter and, and Paul's confrontation helps me understand uh, that, that what, what first seemed like a strange thing to say at the end of verse 14. That rhetorical question, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? I didn't immediately understand what was going on with that. But now I think I do. And I think that what I've been saying up to this point about Peter really agreeing about the gospel and having been living in light of the gospel before and now changing his course. I think those things help understand what Paul is saying here in this, in this question. So Peter is a Jew. But up until now, he's been living like a Gentile. He's not observing the laws about who can eat what with whom because he knows those laws don't matter anymore. Their purpose has been fulfilled. So he's living like a Gentile and not like a Jew up until this point. But now... He would force Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, by drawing back from them, he's insisting that they now embrace cleanliness laws that yesterday he had rejected. He's expecting them to live like Jews as if that mattered, as if God would be less than pleased with them as they are. That's what Paul's trying to tell him. Peter's gospel says one thing and his action says another, and that is serious because it leads people astray, because it hurts precious people. And ultimately, because it tells a lie 
about the only gospel that can do anyone any good. That's why Paul opposes Peter to his face. That's what happened in Antioch. So what can we learn from it? That's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. What can we learn from it? And I want to give you three things and chew on each one of them for a little while. What can we learn from what happened in Antioch? Here's the first thing. It's the most fundamental. The first thing we learn from what happened in Antioch is it's possible to affirm the gospel in our words and in our minds but deny the gospel in our lives. I don't think that's putting it too strongly. It's possible to affirm the gospel in our words and in our minds, what we believe and what we say about the gospel, and yet deny it in our lives. That means, friends, that we can't be content to just get the nuts and bolts of the gospel squared away in our minds. You know, nodding along to what we hear is not, is not going to be enough. Unbelief will often show up in us, not in what we say or affirm, but in how we live. And there's a positive way to put this, that it's important that we figure out and press into the implications of the gospel for our lives. Because it touches everything. I want to just give you a few examples of things in our lives that can show, that can, that can be out of step with, to use Paul's language, out of step with the gospel that we affirm. I'm going to start with Peter and the examples that his, that his story puts onto our radar. The first, for example, pride. Often it's going to be our pride that moves us out of step with the gospel. For Peter, it was a kind of ethnic or racial pride. And that kind of ethnic superiority will always be a direct contradiction to the truth of the gospel. Because whether it's based in our ethnicity or based in our performance or based in our views, anytime we feel superior to anybody else, what we're acting like, no matter what we might say about the gospel, what we're acting like is that we don't need Jesus as much as they do. As if we aren't so helpless or so needy or so guilty of sin against God as they are. As if our worthiness in life before one another and before God comes from something in us that they don't have. Anytime we feel superior to others for any reason, we're out of step with the gospel. Because that sense of superiority is always going to be a sign that something other than Jesus factors into how we see ourselves and how we see other people. Something that has nothing to do with Jesus has registered with us in how we see ourselves and in how we see others. What that says is that we think of Jesus as something we might need, but merely to top off our righteousness. You know, like we've got a a three-quarters full tank and we'll use Jesus to go ahead and top it off. We're not one of those people who's completely empty, though. Friends, that's always pride and it'll always be out of step with the gospel because the gospel tells us that's, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Whatever sets you apart from somebody else, whether it's your race or your accomplishments, or your views, or your lifestyle choices, whatever that thing is, is nothing compared to what you share with them. What you share with them is a sinfulness before God that on your own defines who you are more than anything else about you. And what you share if you're in Christ is a grace that is your only hope 
and that you enjoy on the same basis as every other person everywhere who's ever trusted in Jesus. As one author puts it, we are all unclean without Christ and we're all clean in him. That's it. Let's, let's flip the coin over to the other side. So if, uh, one thing we can be looking for here for, for areas that we're out of step with the gospel is, is pride, any sense of superiority to other people like we see in Peter here. The other side of that coin, though, is fear. Those two go so closely together. And our fear is always going to be out of step with the gospel. Fear of losing face. Fear of being exposed and ashamed. Perhaps most deeply, the fear of being excluded, which seemed to motivate Peter here. Because, friends, the urge to belong is powerful. It is deep in us. It reflects something about how God made us. We weren't meant to be on our own, on an island somewhere. And when you do belong or have a chance at belonging to a group that matters to you, the urge to stay loyal to that group, to your tribe, well, that's going to be powerful too. It's going to affect you in a way that's sub-rational, that's natural, will feel natural to you and even intuitive. In Peter's case, just to take him again, he knows the truth that all are unclean apart from Christ All are clean in Christ. He knows that. And he hasn't changed his mind. But Peter's gut instincts are still shaped by loyalty to a tribe that was once his life. So Peter, when push comes to shove, chooses hypocrisy. He defends himself through deception about what he really thinks. But friends, fear like this is always out of step with the gospel. It's not just because what he said about Gentiles doesn't square with who they are in Christ. That's partly it. One reason this kind of fear is out of step with the gospel is that, is that behind this drive to save face, he's missing the fact that in Christ he has no need to save face. There's nothing to protect yourself from when you are one with Jesus. When his righteousness is yours and you can't lose it. The old Peter was defined by his ethnic tribe and his loyalty to their ways. This Peter is defined by Jesus and lives only in him. That Peter had been crucified with Christ, as Paul will say a little bit later in this chapter. The new Peter lives the life that he lives in the flesh only in Christ, who loved him and gave himself up for him. When we fear what other people think, we're out of step with the gospel, as if Jesus is not everything we need for our own identities. This is true and strong. There's plenty of other examples. When we resent other people who've sinned against us, we're out of step with the gospel, which tells us that God has forgiven us for far more and has been gracious to us beyond what we could ever deserve. When we wallow in shame over our past, as all of us are tempted to do, we're out of step with the gospel that tells us Christ has taken our sins as his own. Those are his now. And he's given to us his righteousness. It's perfect, unblemished, and defines who we are before God. My anxiety about the future is out of step with the gospel. As if the God who didn't spare his own son would possibly hold something back from me that I need. Would leave me to my own strength and my own wisdom. Wouldn't be attentive at some point. Would sort of go off I would go off of his grid so that he's not attentive to every detail that affects me. I'm out of step with the gospel in my anxiety. 
I mean, we could go on and on. The point is, I hope, clear by now. There is only one gospel. Paul's been saying that from the beginning. But that one gospel has implications. Implications that spread far and wide throughout our lives. Implications that touch everything and reach far beyond what we'll ever be able to see. Here's, here's, let me sum up like this. What I hope you're not hearing and talking about how important it is that we apply the implications of the gospel to our lives, I hope you're not hearing is that now the gospel becomes a new law by which you prove something. There's only one gospel. The only thing that will ever make you worthy before God and others is the righteousness of Jesus, which is yours by faith, plus nothing else. The, the point of this is not to make us afraid that, oh, we might be out of step with the gospel and therefore miss out on the gospel. That's not Paul's point. You will only ever enjoy the gospel by faith, not faith plus your ability to perfectly live out the implications. Uh, that said, the implications matter. And Peter, let's just say, let's just say that Peter didn't need more help than you will. You don't understand anything about the gospel Peter didn't understand, and I certainly don't either. Peter learned this gospel from Jesus. He got it from the source. And look how easy it was for him to step out of line. We're going to need help. We're going to need what Peter needed. And that brings me to the second thing we can learn from this story. If we want to live in the security of who we are in Christ so that the gospel touches everything about us, not out of fear, but out of joy and out of love, out of confidence. We're going to need help understanding what those implications are and help seeing when our lives have stepped out of line. So the second thing we can learn about this story, from this story rather, from what happened in Antioch, is this. The gift God has given us to help us recognize when we're out of step with the gospel is Christian community. The second thing we learn from what happened in Antioch is this. The gift God has given us to help us recognize when we're out of step with the gospel is Christian community. See, the thing about sin is that it blinds us. Its power comes from deception. Peter here, he's just doing what seems right to him. He's just reacting from his gut. And so does everybody else, just following suit. We're going to do the same thing. We're not always going to recognize when our attitudes and our actions aren't in line with the gospel that we affirm. We're going to need help with that. And that's one of the main reasons God has given us the local church. The kind of care that in this passage, in this story, we see Paul giving to Peter is a care that, that I can't live without and you can't live without. So... It's a care we've got to be willing to give to others and receive from them. To that end, let me just give you a couple of suggestions to chew on here. These are suggestions for how we can lean into the role that God has given the local church to play in our lives, helping us to walk in line with the gospel and see its precious life-giving implications everywhere in our lives. A few suggestions for you here. Here's the first one. Join a local church. You should join a local church as a member. And I realize that many of you here are already members of Trinity, but many of you here are not. You're maybe brand new to Nashville, checking out churches around town, 
Thanks be to God, there's a lot of faithful ones here. My encouragement to you this morning, if that's, if that's who you are, is to, is to find one to join quickly and to make a commitment that these will be your people, that you will give care to them and invest in their lives and you'll receive care from them and allow them to invest in your life. The reason this is so important, that this, that this commitment is made to another local church, is that you shouldn't give the kind of care Paul's giving to Peter here unless somebody asks you to. It's a vulnerable thing to have someone paying attention to the details of your life and sometimes to speak up when they see something. This is, there's no sort of free agents out there who just go around calling people out for stuff. That, that's not a biblical or healthy model. You shouldn't want that care from somebody like that, and you shouldn't be the person who's just trying to scattershot that kind of care to anybody that comes across your path. No, no, there, there needs to be structure and safety and commitment in place for this kind of model of community to work. This, this kind of care requires vulnerability and trust, and especially, friends, what it takes for it to work well is a confidence that comes from relationships where love and commitment are givens. You don't have to worry about where you stand with the people that you're speaking with. And that's what church membership is all about. It's just us saying, we're, we're gonna be one another's people. This is how we'll love one another. This is the care we'll give. This is the care we'll receive. So join a local church. Then you need to invite your friends to speak into your life like this because even inside the covenant of a local church, it still might not be easy for people to go here with you. Best case scenario, friends, you're doing everything perfectly. I suppose that is one option. Next best case is that though you're not perfect, your friend who loves you helps you to see it. Worst case scenario, and unfortunately, far more likely, you're not doing everything perfectly and you don't see it because you haven't asked for feedback or your friends are too afraid to shoot straight with you. That's worst case scenario. So invite them. Ask them to tell you what they see. And here's another suggestion. In case they're afraid to shoot straight with you, make it really easy on them. Don't try to dodge or deflect the blow. Don't make them get it just right in what they say before you can hear them as if you're trying to get off on a technicality. Don't assume they're against you personally. If your friends expect you to respond like that, they may not have the energy to go there with you like Paul went there with Peter. And just remember, friends, you have no reason to defend yourself. No reason to get out from under whatever it is they may see if you're in Christ. Because the gospel tells you there is nothing they could show you about yourself that could possibly add to the desperate dependence on Jesus that drove you to him in the first place. There's nothing they could see that adds to the weight of your sin and what you already know about yourself or else you wouldn't be a Christian. And there is nothing they could show you that can take away from the perfect righteousness Jesus has given to you. It's still perfect, no matter what they see in you, and still yours by faith in him. So what is at stake? Only one thing, your personal growth in holiness. That's it. The only thing that could happen here is you could grow. So make it easy on them to help you grow. Here's one last thing I'll suggest on this. Be willing to love your friends enough to challenge them as Paul did when necessary. Are you? Because it could cost you. It could be awkward for a while. 
It could require a lot of your time and thinking and prayer and conversation and it could still go nowhere. There's lots of ways it could cost you. But let me just tell you this, friends. If you see something important, something harmful to your friends, something maybe everybody but them sees about them, and you hold it back, you won't be holding it back because of how much you love them. You'll be holding it back because of how much you love you. And that, friends, will be out of step with the gospel, which tells us of Jesus who gave himself up for his bride that he might sanctify her. He paid that cost. We can too. For the same purpose. Growth in holiness. Now all of that was meant to try to help you put some flesh on that second thing we learn from what happened at Antioch. The gift God has given us to help us recognize when we're out of step with the gospel is Christian community. So let's lean into that together. Now there's one more thing I want you to notice before we conclude this morning that we learn from what happened in Antioch. One more thing that we learn. And while we're on the subject of speaking into someone else's life for love of them, let me say what Paul does for Peter, there's something modeled in what he does for Peter here that's often lost on us when we do get up the gumption to confront something. Maybe especially if confrontation comes easy for you. If you're one who doesn't really mind going there with people, then, then there's something I want you to see out of how Paul cares for Peter that you desperately need to see and that'll have to be in all of us if we're gonna work together to walk in line with the gospel. Here's the third thing that we learn. We must confront what's out of step of the, with the gospel in a manner that's in step with the gospel. We confront what is out of step with the gospel in a manner that is in step with the gospel. And that's going to mean two things. To to confront things that are out of step with the gospel in a way that reflects the beauty of the gospel is going to mean two things. It's going to mean that our goal, if we go here with our friends, is always going to be restoration and never going to be punishment. Paul says at the end of his letter, and he's calling on the Galatians to take up the work he's modeled for them here. He says, if anyone's caught in transgression, talking about sin, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, he says. Restore with gentleness. The goal will never be punishment. Christ has absorbed every bit of punishment any one of us will ever deserve. It is not for us to add to that load. Our only goal is to restore people that we love who we know will be better off, will be healthier, will be more secure in their identity in Christ if they see what we want them to see. And the second thing that matters, the second thing that matters, if we're going to confront what's out of step with the gospel in a manner that's in step with the gospel, is that our appeal will always be to the gospel itself. We will reason with one another from grace, not from guilt. This is, the, this is the thing I really want you to see about how Paul addresses Peter. At one level, we don't get to see what happened with this situation. Paul doesn't give us the tidy ending that we might would like. If we drop it where I've ended this morning at verse 14, 
We don't see much at all into Paul's motives and the tone and the goal that he had as he confronted Peter. But one thing that struck me as I read from several different scholars about this passage, many of them believe that the words that Paul said to Peter actually continue into the verses after the one I finished with this morning. Those quote marks that stop at verse 14, those are not original. Those weren't in the original uh, the letter that Paul wrote. We've added those. That's an interpretation that somebody made. And many scholars believe that, that he's still talking to Peter when he gets to verse 15 and 16 here. And if that's true, which I think is fair to believe, even if, even if it's not a direct quote, that Paul is still on topic here. He's still using language he would have used with Peter. Then look at how he confronts him. He's reminding Peter of who he is in Christ. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, he says, we've believed. You, Peter. Me, Peter. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Do you notice here what Paul is not saying to Peter. He's not saying, Peter, you're a racist. Shame on you. Get out of my sight. That's not what he's saying. Paul could have used Peter's sin here as a kind of stepping stone for himself, for his own climb to a higher pedestal of holiness, where people could see him more easily, where he could more easily look down on others. You know, like if his truth-telling here played out on Twitter, for example. But Paul doesn't care here about how he's perceived. He cares about Peter and those affected by Peter's actions. That's who he cares about. He's not slapping on a label and moving on, giving up on Peter and sticking to people who already get it. See, friends, there's a posture in confrontation that is just as out of step with the gospel as the pride or ethnic superiority that Paul's confronting here. There's a kind of confrontation that is more search and destroy mission than surgical healing. One of my favorite books is a novel by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. And one of my favorite lines in that book is a pastor who is is describing the difference between um, a prophet and a scribe or a Pharisee in the Bible. Scribe or Pharisee being the self-righteous perspective that Jesus so often comes out against in his teaching. The line is that the, prophet, the difference between a, a prophet and a scribe is that the prophet loves whom he chastises and the scribe doesn't. The prophet loves whom he chastises. The scribe doesn't. Notice what Paul is not saying to Peter. He is not beating him over the head with his own righteousness so that Peter feels appropriately guilty. Now notice what he is saying. Rather than distancing himself from Peter... Rather than using Peter to establish his own purity and his own righteousness, Paul is pointing back to the gospel that is their, plural, only hope. His and Peter's. Did you see all the we language and how he reasons with him? He's reminding him of who he is, accepted and righteous in Christ. 
We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. We. Because Paul knows that Peter's racism didn't put him beyond the reach of God's grace any more than Paul's racial justice put him closer to hand. It's Jesus plus nothing all the time, everywhere. And it's that gospel that drives Paul to correct Peter, to restore Peter. It's the same gospel he uses to do the job. So friends, what we learn from what went down in Antioch is that our calling is to speak the truth in love. That's how we confront what's out of step with the gospel in a manner that is in step with the gospel. We confront what we confront knowing we are not anybody's standard. And nobody out there is farther gone than I am apart from grace. That means that in Christ, none of us is past saving. That is our hope and our goal. Father, I pray that you would help us to have grace to love one another well in this way. We know that we have received an inheritance that is precious to us and that is not all deferred. Part of the inheritance of the gospel of your work through Jesus for us is meant for us now to enjoy peace and security in your love, to enjoy a new way to be with one another through your love. And we want our lives to reflect the way you've loved us. We thank you that you've given us a community of people who love us enough to help us grow in that, in that line with the gospel. And I pray that you would make us a people willing to engage one another in this loving and, and healthy and gracious way. We pray that you would protect us from the self-love that holds us back from this kind of care. That you protect us from the defensiveness that resists this kind of care. That you would protect us from any righteousness we might hold on to for ourselves and give us all the peace that comes from knowing we stand together in need of grace and stand together in what we have received from your hand. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.